What time does the 7 o'clock meeting start? 7 o'clock. Two things I got to do before we open, um, because I'll forget. Everyone in the room, first of all, welcome to New Freedom. Welcome to PON. Perhaps more importantly, next week, we're going to have a film crew here. We, we told you that the people in all the prisons in Arizona are now seeing this a little delayed. Uh, also, all the people in Maricopa County jail system are going to start seeing it. So that's exactly what I wanted you to do. I wanted you to give them a big shout out in all the prisons and jails in the state of Arizona. Welcome home. We got a place for you. And next week, next week they're going to come in here and they're going to film people and they're going to see faces because we want them to have the whole picture. I had a guy from Illinois come in here and he goes, I've been watching you for years in Illinois and I thought it was just you talking to about 10 people in a room. I said, no, no, there's hundreds of people here welcoming you here, and we want you to know that. So we're going to capture it. If that troubles you, either don't come next week or, you know, wear a mask, whatever. But we are doing it, and we're not doing it for us. We're doing it for them. We always open with a prayer, so Chaplain Lee, if you'd come do your thing. Come on, everybody stand to your feet. All right. Welcome. Let us pray. Father, we thank you today for everything you've done, everything you're doing. We welcome you into this place. We give you all the praise, glory, and honor as we look at step four on tonight. We ask you, God, to be with us as we take a look deep within, doing a personal inventory. We recognize we could never do none of this by ourselves, but with you we can do all things. So we thank you on tonight for being here. We ask you to use your manservant as he speaks to the multitudes. In the mighty name of Jesus, we give you all the praise, glory, and honor. And let everyone say amen. Thank you, chap. So anyone in the room for the first time tonight? A few of you? Good deal. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for coming out. Uh, what we do here may be a little different than other meetings of other fellowships you may have attended, so we want to warn you in advance. What we do is we take a look at the suggested instruction for a step or so a week directly out of this book, and we use this book in 12-step recovery. Why? Yeah, the process described by the authors of this book has been proven to work for addicts of the hopeless variety, addicts to alcohol and other substances. Yeah? yeah. So what we do here is try to show you how I find my experience in the book, because this is the collective experience of the first 100 and their observations of the first several thousand men and women who recovered. So we don't change their testimony, we don't add a spin to this is what I did. All I try and do is show you how I try and align my experience with theirs and encourage you to do the same. Does that make sense? If we, if we both do our job, we will share a spiritual experience in this room tonight. How many of you have been here before and can witness for folks that happen? There you go. So those of you online can't see, they're raising their hand, but when we speak of a spiritual experience in 12-step recovery, we're speaking of a, a sensory experience. You'll feel it. And when you do, I'll know, and I'll call it to your attention, because we would cheat you to talk to you about the power we call God without giving you a demonstration. <laughs> That's really good. Good work. 
In other words, it's a sensory power, it's a tangible sensory experience. We want people to know that when we're talking about God, we're talking about power within you, right? So tonight we're gonna look at step four. And let's just get launching. On the bottom of page 63 of the book, the authors start talking about their story. They said a prayer, and the very next thing they say is, next we launched out on a course of vigorous action. So the first thing I want to ask people, how many of you have started in this manner of living, started doing some of the step process? How, how many of you have done more than a start? How many of you would have to admit that your first effort at a fourth step was less of a launching than you might have liked? So there is something about the experience of the first 100 and the first several thousand that they accessed power to launch. If you have not accessed power to launch, we should go back, not forward. Does that make sense? And, and because there's an encounter in two, and then the prayer I say in three is no longer to a theory or a concept, but to an animating force within me. And it makes all the difference in how I live from there forward. How many of you have had that experience? Some of you are feeling that as I'm talking about it. Who's feeling that? Where are you at? Yeah, that's happening in you. That's not, that's not, I'm just aware, if that makes sense. Okay, so next we launched out on a course of vigorous action, the first step of which is a personal house cleaning, which many of us had never attempted. Though our decision was a vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. Our liquor was but a symptom. How many of you in your active addiction sort of suspected that whatever chemical you were doing was a symptom of something deeper? How many of you concluded that had to be true because you had abstinence and then something went wrong and then you didn't have abstinence? So if the liquor or the cocaine or the methamphetamine or the fentanyl or whatever combination of chemical test pilot thing we were doing, right, Lance? <laughs> if that was the only problem, that wouldn't happen once it was removed, right? Okay, so that's, that's what they're concluding is that there must be something underlying that I haven't taken care of. Are we on, with them? Okay, so then it says that so we had to get down to causes and conditions. And it's important you get to that. I'm thinking all these outward manifestations of my addiction are causes and conditions. Oh no, those are effects. Right. Does that make sense? When someone like me ingests chemicals, those are the effects. Okay, so therefore we started upon a personal inventory. This was step four. Now who is we? The first 100. So if you didn't start on a personal inventory, everything we're going to start describing from here you may not yet know. But this book is written at this point in past tense. So they're not speaking to you of theories, they're speaking to you of an experience they've had. So as we go, they're going to give us a little bit of a sort of a scenario and then they're going to launch into what they did. Does that make sense? Okay. So it says a business which takes no regular inventory usually goes broke. Taking a commercial inventory is a fact-finding and a fact-facing process. It's an effort to discover the truth about the stock and trade. One object is to disclose damaged or unsaleable goods to get rid of them promptly and without regret. 
If the owner of the business is to be successful, he cannot fool himself about values. We did exactly the same thing with our lives. So I read through all of that, and I know our attention spans are not good. But I have to give it all to you to give you context, and then we'll go back and deconstruct it now that they said we did exactly the same thing with our lives. Does it make sense? And we'll deconstruct that whole paragraph sentence by sentence and see if it makes sense, the precise instruction they're laying out for us. So the first thing they said was that this is a fact-finding and a fact-facing process. So how many of you found facts, didn't face them? So we're going to enjoin action with intention as we go forward in this new manner of living. Does that make sense? Sound like a plan that might work? Okay. Then it says it's an effort to discover the truth about the stock and trade. So what's the stock and trade in this instance? Yeah, me, my life experiences, how my self manifests, which I've agreed to self manifested in various ways, what it defeated me. So they said they're going to get down to the truth. How many of you have had the experience of having your truth? How many of you have learned other people's truth about you or their perspective of you? How many of you have noticed that there might be a little gap between your truth, their truth, and the truth? So we're going to try and get to the truth. Does that start to make sense? So we're not working in the world of illusions. We're working in the world of power. That makes sense. Okay. All right. And then it says, one object is to disclose damaged or unsaleable goods to get rid of them promptly and without regret. So they said that's one object. If there's one object, there must be more. How many of you thought doing this inventory was just about getting that one dark secret out? I used to hear that a lot. You're just as sick as your secrets. You just got to get that secret out. Anyone heard that? If you've been around enough fellowship, you have. That's one object. But guys, this is not a crap hunt. This is a treasure hunt. Where did they tell us the power was found? Deep down inside. And some, how did they say we find it? Sometimes we have to search fearlessly. And then they go on to say, in the last analysis, it's only there that he may be found. So the facts about me are the facts about me. But the facts about me is that I am a hopeless addict. I am supposed to be dead in addiction or locked up forever or some combination thereof. But I walk a free man and I hope other people get liberated because I took those facts to the truth and he empowered me to walk out a new man. Does that make sense? And that's what we're hoping all of you will do. Right? You should be encouraged. Who felt that? Okay, there you go. That's the power we call God around here. There you go. There you go. All right. So it says we did exactly the same thing with our lives. We took stock honestly. First, we searched out the flaws in our makeup, which caused our failure. Being convinced that self manifested in various ways is what had defeated us, we considered its common manifestations. So there's this identity I have for me, and then I've got this fear-driven self, and in response to fear, I'll start in all kinds of self-seeking self-pitying, dishonest patterns to try and prove to you I'm not what you think I am or that I'm more than what you think I am or maybe just trying to prove it to me. Any, any of you ever put on an act and 
You knew you were acting, but you were such a good actor, no one else knew you were acting? <laughs> Everyone with an ADCRR number knows that gig. <laughs> Come. All right, so they're going to start telling us precisely what these manifestations of self were for them and then see if you can relate because it really boils down to some pretty simple stuff, right? So it says resentment's the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. So it says it destroys. What is it that destroys? Resentment. Resentment destroys more than anything else. Does that make sense? So that's part of the thing is get down to the root cause of that, and we're going to use whatever that experience is that I keep refueling for purpose, and once I do that, it's no longer a struggle. It's part of the purpose. Does that make sense? Okay. So from it stem all forms of spiritual disease, for we've not only been mentally and physically ill, we've been spiritually sick. So how many of you have still have some trouble with the idea that we can be spiritually sick? No one in this room. That's good. That's good. Because sometimes people are really bothered with that idea, but re reality is the spirit animates the, the flesh and the thoughts. So it, you know, if I'm not acting in a way I know is right or I'm not feeling in a way that's right, then there's something wrong with my spirit. It's just that simple, right? Okay. So it says, when the spiritual maladies overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. In this world, we always want to treat the mental and the physical, and we don't spend enough time on the spiritual. And once we focus on the spiritual, the other two conditions straighten out. That's their witness. How many of you have noticed that around here? We don't have a spiritual part of our program. We have a therapeutic part of our program. And then we have a spiritual manner of living. Yes? Okay. All right. So in dealing with resentments, we set them on paper. So who's we? So the first 100 in dealing with resentments set them on paper. How do y'all deal with resentments? <laughs> Share them with your friends. Anybody? How many of you are getting a spin? Any of you are getting a spin and just go share your dissatisfaction with the world with somebody? Okay. So we listed people, institutions, or, or principles with whom we are angry. So they're just telling you what the list is. Instead of telling and poisoning the consciousness around me, just get it on paper. Let's get it out. We ask ourselves why we are angry. So the second column I'm angry at, here's why. And then in most cases, it was found that our self-esteem, our pocketbooks, our ambitions, our personal relationships, including sex, were hurt or threatened. So we were sore. We were burned up. Any of you ever noticed how when someone affects the way you think about yourself or your security in other ways, not emotional security, but physical security, your job, whatever, you can get a little bit feisty? That's what they found, too. So it says on our grudge list, we set opposite each name our injuries. So now we're going to look at who it is I'm finding offensive and why I'm finding offensive and what's, what's going on with me. Huh? And then it says, was it our self-esteem, our security, our ambitions, our personal or sex relations which had been interfered with? How many of you have done some of this and have noticed that the closest relationships you ever had probably tripped a lot of those triggers? So a lot of people could do stuff around us that we wouldn't really necessarily know about and it wouldn't affect us in the same way as somebody that we perceived closer to us, yes? Okay. So I'm not going to go through their example, but I'm going to go down to the bottom. It says, we went back through our lives. Nothing counted but thoroughness and honesty. So Sean 
brought up the point, this is about getting armed with the fact. I had a narrative about my life and why it ended up in the mess that it ended up in at one time. And it involved a lot of things you did and not a lot of things that I was responsible for. And I learned that as long as I gave external forces the power to determine my destiny, I might as well stay dead. But I had to start owning everything. One of the things, one of the freeing things about the four-step inventory and the manner of living you'll embark on after that is whatever decision I have to make, as long as I agree to own all the consequences that come from it, I'm free. Does it make sense? Because sometimes we're called to do stuff that's scary. Yes? Sometimes we're called to do stuff the rest of the crowd doesn't think makes any sense. But if the Spirit tells me, go do it, you can bet I'll go do it, because I know what happens when I don't follow that instruction. Okay. All right, so when we were finished, we considered it carefully. So why would I consider it carefully? Do you agree with Sean? How many of you shaded your story a little bit, knowing you were going to have to tell it, and then you realized somewhere along the way, I really need to tell this straight? So we might want to consider it carefully to make sure we're not trying to fool ourselves, right? Okay. And it says, the first thing apparent was that the world and its people are often quite wrong. How many of you determined that? We need to understand that the world and its people are often quite wrong, and that's not going to change because I sobered up. And I'm not going to help that situation by going off like I often have in the past. I can let the world and its people be who they are. I can even let them be wrong without calling their attention to it. Does that make sense? But that isn't really my problem. They said that my consciousness of this power within was obscured by calamity. That's a calamity. My perception of how I've been treated in the world. That's not to say that many of us haven't been treated very bad and we have no part in why we were treated so bad. But if I got the grace to get through it, I can use that experience to help someone else trying to get through it. And when I do that, I'm walking in power and purpose. Does that make sense? Okay. So it says, to conclude that others were wrong was as far as most of us ever got. So they're talking about the experience of getting stuck in the thought loop. Any of you ever been stuck in the thought loop? Okay. The usual outcome is that people continued to wrong us and we stayed sore. Do you have a similar outcome? Think about what they're just describing. That son of a bitch. Oh, I can't think this way. I gotta, I'll pray for him. I hope that son of a bitch gets everything he deserves. Can't get out of the loop. I'm going to need a power grader me to get out of the loop. I'm going to have to turn my thought to others. And until I do, I'm going to keep being in self-destructive patterns. Does that make sense? Okay. It says, sometimes it was remorse, and then we were sore at ourselves. Ever go the other way? Didn't do it perfect, and now what's the use? Might as well throw it all away. Where's my people that have had more than one struggle in recovery? Okay. So you're, you're not alone. I are one, too. The reality is the vast majority of people have more than one go. The trick to recovery is don't quit. Keep growing. Okay, 
But the more we fought and tried to have our own way, the worse matters got. As in war, the victor only seemed to win. Our moments of triumph were short-lived. Have you ever had a seeming victory and then the other part of the story came out? Maybe you tuned up the boss or something. Any of you ever, like Jim, the car guy, go to work and be a little disgruntled about that crappy job you got and had a few words with him, and now you didn't have that crappy job, but you needed to go find another crappy job? <laughs> All right, so it's plain that a life which includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness. That's the author's observation having done the step experience, have you guys done enough of your experience to see that it, a life that includes this deep resentment is going to be problematic? Okay. So it says, to the precise extent that we permit these, do we squander the hours that might have been worthwhile? So they gave you a little key there. What's the, what's the key there? We're going to waste a lot of time. And I'm permitting it. How many of you have been stuck in resentment and seemingly going nowhere and did not know you were permitting it? That's not, a, not an uncommon experience. I'll tell my age now again, Sean. There was an Eagles song. <laughs> not they don't know anything about it, but in that particular song, the lyrics said, so oftentimes it happens that we live our lives in chains and we never even know we hold the key. So a lot of people know that story. How many, who, how many of you felt that? There you go. That's that power we call God running up down the aisles. Okay. So, but with the alcoholic whose hope is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience, this business of resentment is infinitely grave. We found that it's fatal. So if you've determined you're an alcoholic, you're going to have to quit making fun of resentment and start processing and moving through resentment. Does it make sense? Or you're going to keep getting what you got. All right, so, for when harboring such feelings, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit, the insanity of alcohol returns, and we drink again, and with us, to drink is to die. How many of you have learned that? Had some clean time, drank, used, whatever, and whatever sanity you thought you had recollected was instantly vanished. So if we were to live, we had to be free of anger. They're starting to talk to us about our, what our real underlying conviction is. See, I, the substances and the worldly things, those are symptoms. But what I really have is a control addiction. Yeah. And I'm trying to control all these things. I'm trying to control outcomes. I'm trying to control experiences. And if I stay in that, pretty soon, the, the persistence of the illusion is astonishing. Many of us pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. They talk about it, right? Yeah. Okay. The only substance in the known universe powerful enough to overcome a control addiction is a little substance called faith. Some of you may have read about it. Um, so the grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. They may be the dubious luxury of normal men, but for alcoholics, these things are poison. So they've determined, hopefully by this time, that I've gotten far enough to know that I may be this person with an alcoholic condition, therefore an alcoholic, and although other people may be able to run around angry, that's not a luxury I can afford. Okay. Um, we turn back to the list, for it held the key to the future. So what would be the key to the future? 
Yeah, an experience of the truth. If you, if you follow a Sean's going, if you read the steps that are on the walls for the last 80 years, it says God as we understood him. And that's not the same as God of my understanding. They understood this experience, right? And, but they, they always have it in italics because what I understood then is not what I understand now. So part of the power I grew in was divine understanding. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, so, so we were prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle. What did they tell me the insanity of addiction was? A lack of perspective, the inability to think clearly. So I'm going to have to get a growing perspective in order to live free. I'm going to have to get out of this small little world and start living in a bigger world. I'm going to have to start living for all of you instead of just for me, because I tried living just for me, and I just had a bush in a box. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Okay. And I wasn't even the fun kind of bush. Um, we began to see that the world and its people really dominated us. How many of you felt that way? You don't have to be high to feel that way, do you? It can feel like the whole thing's crashing down, huh? In that state, the wrongdoing of others, fancied or real, had the power to actually kill. And then they came to a question, how could we escape? When they have a question in this book, they want you to go introspective. So you ask yourself, if you've had that experience, how could we escape? And then they're going to tell you what they did. Does that make sense? We saw that these resentments must be mastered, but how? So you're going to have to be honest. I've tried to master these resentments. I thought I had a different attitude, and then someone came along that reminded me of that other experience, and I was angry all over again. So I hadn't mastered them. I had masked them off just the same way I had with chemicals. Okay, so we could not wish them away any more than alcohol. So how many of you tried wishing them away? Because what I just described is that experience of trying to wish it away. And we think it's gone until an old idea pops up, right? Okay. So this was our course. We realized that the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. Oh, wow. If I've been spiritually sick and I'm just coming into that awareness, maybe that's up with the rest of the world. Maybe I shouldn't be so hard given that coming from where I come from, I'm really not in a great position to judge. Though we did not like their symptoms and the way these disturbed us, they, like ourselves, were sick too. So what are their symptoms? Anyone agree with them? Yeah. Sounds like Sean knows his inventory, right? <laughs> Selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, fear, guilt, shame, remorse. We come here full of that, and we paint the world we live in with that. Does that make sense? So no wonder I'm so familiar with their symptoms. I've been soaking in them for years. Right? Okay. So we ask God to help us, help us show them the same tolerance, pity, patience that we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. I like that you said power then because it's so important to understand if we got half the original fellowships were atheists or agnostics, they, they either believe God did not exist or could not be proven to exist. And so they're not going to ask for this power they don't believe in to do anything. So we call their attention to the tangible nature of the power and say, ask to redirect your thinking, then participate in the plan. Think of what you can add to the situation rather than take from it and see if prayers aren't answered. Does that make sense? Okay. 
So it says, when a person offended, we said to ourselves, this is a sick man, how can I be helpful to him? So I've got to stop, I've got to pause, I've got to say, he's a sick man, not a bad man, how can I be helpful to him? And then wait on the response. God save me from being angry, thy will be done. And then the outcome, I start to understand that I, I'm walking in power to be kinder than I feel like being. How many of you have been graced with the power to be kinder than you feel like being? What is that but a power greater than yourself operating through yourself? Does that make sense? So it doesn't matter what you believe, because even if you don't believe in God, God believes in you. Because you got the power, and you're just supposed to be using it liberally to love your fellows. Okay, so we avoid retaliation or argument. We wouldn't treat sick people that way. If we do, we destroy our chance of being helpful. We cannot be helpful to all people, but at least God will show us how to take a kindly and tolerant view of each and every one. Each and every difficult personality we run into, if we'll get into discipline, God will show us how to take a kindly and tolerant view. And the kindly is the kindness flows through me, the tolerance flows through me, and we're tolerating the symptoms and not the human, and it gets easier in time. I can only tell you it just gets easier in time, right? All right, so referring to our list again and putting out of our minds the wrongs others had done, we resolutely looked for our own mistakes. So they use that word intentionally. Resolutely look for my part when I'm still angry at you. It takes resolve. It also probably takes somebody helping you. That's why we have what we call sponsors. Does it make sense? Because we don't want to go and look at, no, screw that. I just want to be angry at them. Okay, I'm not angry at them, but I don't ever want to see them. I forgive, but I don't forget. Anyone been there? That's not what's possible. Forgive, but don't forget is a human standard, but the divine standard is I remember your sin no more. Okay, so where had we been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? See how they just laid it out? I experienced fear, and then I started seeking to gather unto me, and I ended up in this selfish condition, self-pity, whatever, and then I'm starting to lie to me and everybody else. Okay, so though it's a, decision, a situation had not been entirely our fault, we tried to disregard the other person involved entirely. Where were we to blame? So I've got to start asking myself these questions. Where, what's my part? What was I looking for? Why was I engaging? Yes? And if you get all the way through it and you really had no part, but you survived it, once again, once we get you armed with the facts about yourself, you're going to be able to help thousands of men and women outgrow that condition because you were empowered to. Yes, sir. Well, we don't have to forgive ourselves. That's already been done. A price was paid. You, you didn't choose. You were chosen. We won't. Chosen don't choose. What do I got to forgive me for? I've been redeemed. Absolutely we can talk about it. Everyone in this room was chosen, whether they know it or not. We don't choose 
We don't choose. The chosen don't choose. You were chosen for this life. There's nothing to forgive. Just believe the one he sent. The inventory was ours, not the other man's. When we saw our faults, we listed them. We placed them before us in black and white. We admitted our wrongs honestly and were willing to set these matters straight. So once I get to look at them, to your point, once I know the truth and I'm in a repentant state, of course I'm ready to set the matter straight. And all I have to do then when I'm ready is ask for power to do so. And it'll come because I'm starting to get disciplined and taking captive the thought. Okay, so notice that the word fear is bracketed alongside the difficulties with Mr. Brown, Mrs. Jones, the employer, and the wife. This short word somehow touches about every aspect of our lives. It was an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. It set in motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve, but did we not ourselves set the ball rolling? How many of you done the inventory and saw that? You were pretty sure you were right, and then you thought, mm, <laughs> might have missed that one. Sometimes we think fear ought to be classed with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble. Have you ever noticed that fear can cause you not to take opportunities offered you? So it stole your opportunity. How many of you sat in fear long enough that you had some time stolen from you? Look at the room I'm in, a whole bunch of you. It didn't have to be stolen from you, but the reality is until we get into a purposeful stride, it's, all of us are there, yeah? Okay, so we reviewed our fears thoroughly. We put them on paper even though we had no resentment in connection with them. Did you know you can have fears that drive manifestations of self, but you don't have a resentment in connection with them? They may have driven all kinds of patterns in your life. How many of you had a fear of missing something? <laughs> You'll notice that the fear of missing something, if you were a drinker, maybe you sat in the bar night after night, no one there but you and the bartender, you're sick as a dog, but you don't leave because you don't want to miss nothing. Some of you did the same thing in a trap house. How many of you didn't commit to a relationship that you really, maybe it was the one, he or she was the one, but you didn't want to commit fully and then you behaved the fool and that chance vanished because you thought, if I commit to this one, I might miss the perfect one. May have driven us all our lives, right? Okay. So we ask ourselves why we had them. Wasn't it because self-reliance failed us? So we got to ask ourselves that question, right? Eyesight without insight, spiritual blindness. Have I had all these empowerments, but I had also had failures? And am I defined more by my failures than my successes in my perspective? Any of you get caught in that? This always happens to me. Why? How many of you in addiction just decide if you don't try again, you can't fail again? You take it out far. Okay. So we know, we know what it is to be victimized by our own thinking, yes? So it says self-reliance was good as far as it went, but it didn't go far enough. Some of us once had great self-confidence, but it didn't fully solve the fear problem or any other. When it made us cocky, it was worse. So it's going to be about balance. My, my will that I'm turning over to this power I don't know wasn't taken from me. It was getting properly aligned with 
the purpose for which I was placed here. And I'm always going to be expected to give that extra push, which is why I was left with a will aligned with the Creator. Does that make sense? Yep. Sometimes we're only going to get to here and we're going to need a little more. Any of you been in that place in your life? Like you're pretty sure you're completely exhausted, you got no more, but you had to summon a little more and maybe ask for a little more and then you got to where you're going. Perhaps there's a better way. We think so, for we're now on a different basis, the basis of trusting and relying upon God. Okay, that power found deep down within, right? Sometimes we have to search furiously. We trust infinite God rather than our finite selves. We're in the world to play the role he assigns. How many of you would have to admit it sometimes seems that we got a bit of a shitty assignment? Yeah, sometimes the assignment's tough, isn't it? So the, the, the question isn't why me, which we often default to. The question is why not me? Who better than you is equipped to play the role that is your life? Absolutely no one on the planet. There's seven billion, however many here, and no one is better than you at being you, and you're needed, and you know how I know you're needed? Because you're here. And we need you. We need the authentic you, right? I don't need some version of somebody else through you. I need an authentic you, right? Right? The third step decision was coming to know who I am and whose I am. And once I know those two things, then we walk in victory, yes? Okay, so just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely on him, does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? Isn't that the trick to all of life? To have the power to match calamity with serenity and walk through life in peace in spite of the circumstance? Because circumstance is going to come. Anyone ever find out you can be completely sober and shitty things can happen? We never apologize to anyone for depending upon our creator. We can laugh at those who think spirituality the way of weakness. Paradoxically, it's the way of strength. Spirituality is the way of strength. How many of you have concluded that? The verdict of the ages is that faith means courage. All men of faith have courage. They trust their God. We never apologize for God. Instead, we let him demonstrate through us what he can do. We ask him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have us be. At once, we commence to outgrow fear. We always ask in prayer, what do I do, what do I do, what do I do? Wrong question. We're not the doer. What would you have me be and do through me? Does that make sense? And the answer is usually short. Be faithful, be honest, be still, be quiet, be loving, be kind. And if I'll do those things, I used to hear people say, never pray for patience. No, because you're telling God what you need. Ask God what he would have you be, and if you hear patience, then I would suggest be patient. And you know why I would suggest it? Because whether you're patient or impatient, either way, you're going to have to wait. So it's just about the journey. Does that make sense? Okay, so now about sex.
Some people are thinking we're having a whole different meeting now. <laughs> Many of us needed an overhauling there, but above all, we tried to be sensible on this question. It's so easy to get way off the track. Here we find human opinions running to extremes, absurd extremes, perhaps. One set of voices cry that sex is a lust of our lower nature, a base necessity of procreation. Then we have the voices who cry for sex and more sex who bewail the institution of marriage, who think that most of the troubles of the race are traceable to sex causes. They think we do not have enough of it or that it isn't the right kind. They see its significance everywhere. One school would allow man no flavor for his fare. The other would have us all on a straight pepper diet. They said all of that to get us through the ranges of how we might perceive relation. How many of you have been sex and more sex, and maybe you had a new, bright new relationship and everything was good? And then how many of you came out of a bad relationship and procreation only? So if you can relate to be on both, remember they said we were a bit extreme if we're on both ends of that thing. So our, our human appetites can make us a bit extreme in all these worldly things, yes? And so what their, their advice to us is, we want to stay out of this controversy. We do not want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. We all have sex problems. We'd hardly be human if we didn't. What can we do about them? So what they're trying to do is right-size my attitudes. I'm not here to decide what's appropriate for you. I'm not any good even at deciding what's appropriate for me, but there is one in me that can help me make better discernment and, and move in a much more exemplary way and maybe actually even create the kind of relationship I want to live in. Yes? yes. Okay. So we reviewed our own conduct over the years past where had we been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? So you're in the page, page 69. <laughs> Alcoholics are not without a sense of humor. Page 69, we're going to learn how to meditate about relationships. And the, the middle of that page is how you want to learn to start taking captive your thoughts for a lifetime. This is your 10th step for a lifetime in the middle of page 69. So the only reason we get a little humor, because everyone always goes there, right? <laughs> um, but the reality is that you'll remember this now. This is the essence of my meditation on the fly for a lifetime right here in this paragraph. So as we, we reviewed our own conduct over the years past, where we've been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate. Whom had we hurt? Did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? Where were we at fault? What should we have done instead? We got this all down on paper and looked at it. In your 10th step, you're going to be doing it on the fly, hopefully before you offend, but at least shortly after you get into an offensive pattern, right? When wrong, promptly admit it. Start taking ownership and take captive what's going on with these attacks on my senses. Yes? Okay. So it says, in this way, we tried to shape a sane and sound ideal for our future sex life. So how many of you would like to have a future sex life? A dozen of you? <laughs> the rest of you lying. If you were going to have a future sex life, would you not like to have a safe and sound ideal for it? 
sane and sound ideal for all your future relationships. I don't know why everyone anywhere, regardless of addiction history, doesn't want to do this if they know it's about a sane and sound ideal for all my future relationships. Okay? So, so we said we subjected each relation to this test. Was it selfish or not? How many of you have a hard time? You start growing in this consciousness of this power within us when we start asking, is this selfish or not? And we instantly feel the conviction and then instantly start arguing why it's not selfish. Said so we ask God to mold our ideals and help us live up to them. So they're describing that inner conflict. Now I'm really good. I'm really good for her. No, selfish. No, I'm really. She needs me. Right. And so when that's going on, Tony, talking to you. We let God mold our ideals and help us live up to them. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, we remembered always that our sex powers were God-given and therefore good neither to be used lightly or selfishly, nor to be despised and loathed. So it isn't about self-hatred. It's not about not understanding the human condition. It's about outgrowing the human condition and start growing in your divine identity. Okay, so whatever our ideal turns out to be, we must be willing to grow toward it. So I've heard people talk over the years that, see, you must be willing. It's, it's not that kind of must. It's not a thou shalt. They already told it this is suggestive only. It's not going to work unless I honestly want to and I'm willing to make the effort. That's the nature of spiritual development. Honestly want to, willing to make the effort. So the must is about I must want to grow or I wouldn't have written all this down. I wouldn't have shared it with another. I wouldn't have, right? I want to outgrow that guy. Okay. So we must be willing to make amends where we've done harm. Say must. Of course I'm willing to make amends. I now see my part. I understand that I'm going to get stronger in the spirit when I start taking captive the ego, subordinate the ego to the right thing. Yes? It says, provided we, that we do not bring about still more harm in so doing. In other words, we treat sex as we would any other problem. So the whole thing is not just about sex, although people get confused about that. It's about all my human relationships. And they just wrap them all up in this page. Um, so then it says, in meditation, we ask God what we should do about each specific matter. So maybe you want to take a little time with things that are particularly problematic and, and get right down to what's the answer and then be honest about the power. A lot of people say, why do I keep doing this? And I said, I don't know. The one in you knows, but it may be that you really don't want to stop. And that's none of my business if you really don't want to stop. But if you really don't want to stop, you're wasting valuable high time. Yeah. I, I just, I'm just playing. Or, or whatever it is you're doing, get honest with the power within you because you can't fully concede based on a lie. The first step in recovery is we learned we had to fully concede to our innermost self. There's another book where he said the time is coming, and indeed it's now come, that you must worship in spirit and in truth. Can't do that based on a lie. So if I really don't want the outcome, not gonna get, I'm going to get the outcome I really want. Okay. So, so then it goes on to say the right answer will come if we want it. So see, I didn't make all that up. They're telling you exactly of that experience. I can tell you I want it, but if I'm not doing anything that shows I'm working to develop beyond it, then what I'm telling you, I may be delusion. I may not be lying to you, but I'm definitely lying to me. 
Does that make sense? Okay, so God alone can judge our sex situation. Counsel with other persons is often desirable, but we let God be the final judge. We let power be the final judge. We realize that some people are as fanatical about sex as others are loose. We avoid hysterical thinking or advice. How many of you have gone opinion shopping on what you should do about a specific matter? How many of you got a lot of different answers and finally found one that agreed with you and you went and took that one for a test drive? So we, we can be dishonest with ourselves and we can do that or we can start to grow in the spirit and start getting outcomes that eventually will start to make more sense as we grow. Yes? All right, so suppose we fall short on the chosen ideal and stumble. Any of you afraid to start because what if you don't finish? The whole point of the whole manner of living is to tell you what the whole manner of living looks before you start so that you don't start on this journey without first counting the cost. Make sense? Does this mean that we're going to get drunk? How many of you have made mistakes and didn't get high? How many of you have made mistakes and did get high? So mistakes don't seem to be particularly problematic. It's what do I do with the mistake? Right? We got a step that says when wrong, promptly admit it. How many of you, instead of promptly admitting it, figured out a way to spin it? Does that make sense? We're just trying to get honest with what's going on with us. What's the lie I tell me that keeps me perpetually in crap? And then I would like to identify that lie and cast it out through service. Yeah? Okay. So some people tell us so, but it's only a half-truth. It depends on us and our motives. So that's what they're going to just walk us through that whole thing. How many of you had a motive to get sober long before you could manifest any outward action that showed it? So the first thing I've got to acknowledge is I'm not very good about my own motives. The power in me knew I desperately wanted out, and on the moment it was time and I was properly prepared, I was let out. I did not get sober. I was struck sober. I'm telling you, Sean was there, he knows. I was a raging shit show. That's a clinical term. <laughs> if we're sorry for what we've done and have the honest desire to let God take us to better things, we believe we will be forgiven, we'll have learned our lesson. If we're not sorry and our conduct continues to harm others, we're quite sure to drink. We're not theorizing these are facts out of our experience. So they're just telling you to be the monitor of your own behavior, your own thoughts, your own emotions, but their collective witness of the first several thousand, the name of this book, the first 100, and their experience with the recovery of the first several thousand was that when we're not honest and we continue to do things that harm others, we don't last long. It's, it's, we're too deep in the illusion that that's just okay. To sum up about sex, we earnestly pray for the right ideal, we, for guidance in each questionable situation, for sanity, and for strength to do the right thing. So they're getting pretty serious about, I'm going to have desires that are going to pull me into the way I've always lived, but the way I've always lived is no longer acceptable to me, so I'm going to have to get earnest in my prayer life, and I'm going to have to start in this awakening process, right? Now, why do you think you've got a step to come to believe? We come, we come to, we come to believe, right? Based on a transformative experience, based on an opportunity to serve we didn't know exists before. 
How many of you found out that the worst part of your life has made you uniquely useful to a lot of people who have had deep, dark places? Isn't that power and purpose? We are, we're, okay. So it says, if sex is very troublesome, we throw ourselves the harder into helping others. So if you're really troubled with those thoughts, and all of us have those struggles somewhere in our recovery journey, the idea is to go find a place to pour into somebody else. Does it make sense? Try trying to help. And I don't mean that kind of pour. <laughs> I heard my meth addicts chuckling over there. <laughs> we think of their needs and work for them. So they're telling us the precise thing. If I will think of their needs and work for them, their needs usually are not going to involve my impure thoughts. Right? And then, then try and move in that direction. This takes us out of ourselves. It quiets the imperious urge when to yield would mean heartache. So how many of you have had the opportunity, really stuck in something, then got the opportunity to go serve, and you went and served and realized that the problem you were focusing on was diminished if not removed? That's all they're talking about. That's why we've got our constant thought of others and how to meet their needs. That's my whole manner of living is based on that. It has to be. Not because I'm a selfless guy by nature, because I'm an extreme selfish guy by nature. So if I don't really intentionally move in selflessness, I'm going to be in trouble. So it says, if we've been thorough about our personal inventory, we've written down a lot. How many of you did an inventory and had quite a lot? How many of you were shaken too bad or didn't have enough clarity and it took a number of days and you didn't write, but somebody talked you through it? Over the years, people have talked about this like it was some kind of dogma. It's not that. If, if you, you at some point need to get armed with the facts about yourself and you need to unburden all those old things, those experiences that no longer define you. And whatever that takes, let's get you hooked up. Let's get you free, right? They, they told us this was a launching point. This step four, this is the rocket, guys. You want, to, you want to get free? You want to get launched into a fourth dimension of existence? No one dreamed possible? This is it. Get armed with the facts. Okay. Okay. okay, so it says, if we've been thorough about our personal inventory, we've written down a lot, we've listed and analyzed our resentments, we've begun to comprehend their futility and their fatality. Have you started to do that? They're starting to talk about beginnings. People often like to talk about the step experience like it's a completion, but it's always about beginnings because it's a manner of living. We don't complete. Does it make sense? If I've got a breath in my lungs, I'm supposed to use it to advocate for my brother or sister. So we have commenced to see their terrible destructiveness. Again, beginnings. We have begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill toward all men, even our enemies. For we look on them as sick people. So now my perspective has changed. Does that make sense? We have listed the people we have hurt by our conduct, and we are willing to straighten out the past if we can. Any of you getting to that point? In this book, you read again and again that faith did for us what we could not do for ourselves. What did they tell you did it? Faith. Faith did for them what they could not do for themselves, recreate their lives. We hope you are now, or you are convinced now, that God can remove whatever self-will has blocked you off from him. If you're not convinced, remember this book's in past tense. Once you're armed with the facts, 
Move on to the next step. See where, see where it catches up with you, right? Stay in the step you're in because it's a manner of living anyway. They're all inclusive. If you have already made a decision, so when do we make a decision? Third step. Third step. And an inventory of your grosser handicaps. Fourth step. You've made a good beginning. That being so, you've swallowed and digested some big chunks of truth about yourself. And that's it. Next week, we'll look at five, six, and seven. Thank you very much. Yeah.